Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. It is Monday, November 23rd. And coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about rapid testing of COVID-19 and why the seniors advocate in this province is pushing to have that test available in long-term care homes. So we'll talk about that just after the 1230 news. Also coming up, but can you imagine being told if you don't turn your Christmas lights off at a certain time of night, you will be getting a fine or some other kind of repercussion? perhaps a knock on the door by a police officer. Well, that is up for debate in the District of North Vancouver, and we're going to check in with the district a little bit later on in the hour. Also going to talk about the idea of reporting neighbours for breaking COVID rules, why sometimes that can actually cause more harm than good. But starting off today, we are picking up on a story that you've likely heard in the news. A human rights complaint has been filed against the Bank of Montreal and Vancouver Police by customers who were handcuffed while trying to open a bank account for a 12-year-old. And you might remember this story back in January. I just want to play for you a story that was filed about this uh, involving Maxwell Johnson and his granddaughter. Here's just a little bit to explaining what happened at the bank that day. I told her, I said, there's nothing you guys can do. I said, the damage is already done. I said, my, grand- my granddaughter's going to be traumatized now. Johnson, a loyal customer for seven years, took his 12-year-old granddaughter, Tori, to the BMO branch on Burrard to open an account December 20th. But someone from the branch suspected fraud, so they called 911 to report a discrepancy with Johnson's status card. With no warning, Johnson and his granddaughter were arrested and handcuffed by Vancouver police. How long were you in handcuffs for? 15 to 20 minutes. 15 to 20 minutes? Yeah. Out on the street? Was that scary for you? Yeah. What's going through your mind when you're standing there in handcuffs on the street? I don't know. I was worried about my papa and his mom. Seeing your granddaughter get taken out of there in handcuffs, I don't think any grandfather or parent would like to see that. Joining me on the line now is Marilyn Slett, a chief counselor with the Heltsuk Nation. Marilyn, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, good afternoon. When this story first surfaced, and thankfully Maxwell was talking about this and made a point of making sure this story got out and people saw what had happened, there was some question about whether this was a racist act, about what led to this. Is there any question in your mind now? There, there's no question. I mean, you know, we when we heard about this last year, after it happened as a community, I mean, we were in shock and disbelief um, that that can happen, you know, in this day and age. Um, you know, but certainly reading the transcripts, of, um, you know, between the bank and the Vancouver, Vancouver Police Department, there's a lot of confusion, um, a lot of errors, you know, and certainly uh, discrimination and uh you know, systemic racism that led to, you know, what happened, you know, to Max and his granddaughter. Uh, Do the transcripts, do they shed more light, do you think, on that day? Because we've also, we did hear from the bank, they said they didn't think it was racism that was playing out that day. Uh, I believe we had a statement at one point from Vancouver Police. Uh, Are we learning more about how things unfolded that day from the transcripts? Well, you know, certainly um, it was not clear and there was a lot of confusion. There was, I was shocked to see that they had contacted, and I'm assuming Indigenous Services Canada when they, you know, referred to the Indian government. 
you know, in the transcript. You know, as Indigenous people today, we live under institutionalized racism. And, you know, Max was a, um, uh, a long-time, you know, customer of BMO, you know, and he was there to open up a bank account, you know, with his granddaughter. And, you know, had he not been uh, an Indigenous man, um, you know, I think that that, you know, would play it out, you know, a lot differently. And I think that's that's something that's becoming more and more clear. And, and remembering some of the details from when this happened, I remember Max saying that it was something to do. His granddaughter's card uh, may have had the same number as her mother's card, or, or there was something there that maybe there was a discrepancy. But I think that's where uh, we we can all I think agree that to, for, for just for, for many many people and customers, especially longtime customers of the bank, it would have been a simple question: Hey, there's mm-hmm. a there's a number here. What What's well? Let's let's figure this out. It wouldn't lead to an employee going to a back room and calling nine one one. That's right. That's right. You know, I mean, where where is the dialogue that you know should happen? You know, with a customer, and you know, instead of jumping to you know those types of conclusions, um, you know, because now you know Tori has you know she has to live with this for the the rest of her life. You know, it's you know left. You know, it's going to leave a mark on her. Have you or, or, or have you heard through Maxwell or when talking about this, looking at the response to, to what happened that day, has anyone been able to explain to you or, or, or Maxwell or Tori why the decision was made to handcuff Tori, a 12-year-old girl? That is not clear at all. And, you know, the transcripts, you know, certainly don't, you know, provide any, you know, um, light on to that. You know, there is no reason why a 12-year-old girl should be handcuffed. And even I'm trying to think in, in any scenario, whether it's somebody resisting arrest, uh, somebody that, that is deemed threatening to police, mm-hmm. scenarios when mm-hmm. you would think, okay, I could see why police would restrain somebody. But from people who were there that witnessed this, that, that and again, like you said, getting the transcript, clearly that was not what was, that wasn't the scenario or even anything remotely close to the scenario. That's right. They were, you know, they were shocked, you know, and they, you know, were very calm and, you know, Max, you know, really, you know, emphasized that he wanted to, you know, remain calm and, and you know, have that, you know, calmness. So, you know, not to, you know, you know, scare his granddaughter and, you know, to be there for her, even though they were both going through this, you know, very traumatic experience. What do you hope that in filing this human rights complaint uh, against the Bank of Montreal and the VPD, what do you hope the outcome or what what do you hope that will lead to? Well, definitely with the um, Vancouver Police Department acknowledging that racism is playing a role in how they interact with Indigenous people is, you know, primary. They, They need to acknowledge it. Otherwise, how do we learn from it and how do we move on? And, and deal with it, you know, and certainly for, you know, financial institutions like the Bank of Montreal and others that, you know, um, you know, policy changes, you know, that are national, not just one-off, um, you know, cultural sensitivity training, uh, you know, they need to understand the, the relationship between Indigenous people and Canada. And, uh, you know, you know, these types of things happen through relationship building and through, um, you know, 
concentrated um, efforts, you know, to to do better and and to learn from this and and make sure it doesn't happen. We should never open another, you know, news article going into the future of a young girl opening up a bank account with her grandfather and being handcuffed. You know, this, you know... um, you know, we're, we're still in disbelief when, you know, we sit down and, and you know, reflect on it. Do you think that there, there's more of a, a chance or are you at all more confident that dealing with this today, when this unfortunate incident took place, this was before uh, we saw so many of the protests and rallies, the Black Lives Matter in the United States here in Canada as well. And what seems to be more attention, at least being paid to systemic racism or, or at least the acknowledgement uh, to, to begin with, at least the acknowledgement that, that it is there. Do you think there's more, uh, there, there's a better chance uh, of at least that conversation or a better outcome now? I definitely think so. I mean, I think that, you know, with, um, you know, people of color, Indigenous people, you know, standing up, you know, it's very courageous for, for Max and his family to, to stand up and, and to, you know, take this type of step with, you know, finally, you know, a human rights complaint. You know, as Indigenous people, we've lived under, you know, the uh, systemic, um, you know, and very damaging legislation, you know, of the federal government. You know, they're responsible for Indian residential schools, the prohibition of our culture, you know, the development of reserves, you know, with, you know, Indigenous people living, you know, on, you know, small reserves, you know, and then, of course, you know, what led to this, you know, the um, questions of a status card, you know, I mean, those are cards issued by Indigenous Services Canada, you know, so we continue to live under this, you know, very institutionalized racism and, you know, until, you know, you know, we can, you know, make sure that, you know, this history is, you know, known by Canadians, you know, known by people that, you know, um, in North America, you know, how do you write something, right? And how do you move on? You know, it does really need to be acknowledged, does need to be, you know, um, you know, a shared understanding. All right. Well, we'll be watching uh, to see what happens uh, with this complaint, uh, the human rights complaint. Uh, Marilyn Slett, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. We have been talking about long-term care facilities in this province, well, right across the country, really. But in B.C., there have been calls to make long-term care safer and to make the quality of life for people who live in long-term care as best as can be during a pandemic. So what about rapid testing? Well, my next guest says, what's the harm in bringing that in? Isabel McKenzie is B.C.'s seniors advocate and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, What would you like to see as far as increased testing and rapid testing in long-term care? Well, I think we know more about the virus and how it transmits, particularly around the prevalence of asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic transmission. And we also now have these rapid tests. And that's all different from when we were in the, the thick of our first wave. Uh, And frankly, we are also experiencing a much more prolific second wave. So at the height of the first wave, I think we had 23 care homes in outbreak, and now we have 51 in outbreak. So there are a lot of factors that are combining to say, okay, we um, perhaps need to adjust a testing strategy that we used back in the first wave to what we're seeing in the second wave. And one of the things that we don't do in long-term care is what we call prophylactic testing. So Right now, the only testing that happens in long-term care of staff and or residents 
is when an outbreak is declared, then uh, a number of staff are tested. Sometimes it's all of the staff, but actually sometimes it's not all of the staff. And uh, usually it's all of the residents, but not always all of the residents. We sometimes are waiting for people to display symptoms. We're screening them for symptoms before we test them. And so I think given what we're experiencing on the lower mainland, uh, it's not actually, I think, unreasonable to say perhaps we should be doing some prophylactic testing here. We, we see it in the um, film industry and with the hockey teams, for example. And arguments around it's not that effective, it doesn't catch that many people, those might be compelling arguments in a low community transmission environment. That's not what we're experiencing right now. And there are also uh, some people will say it's not as sensitive, meaning it's not as effective as our gold standard PCR test. Uh, that is also true, but it's more effective than nothing, which is the alternative. That is the status quo. And so you say, what's the harm in having these rapid tests and having staff at care homes be tested if not daily, fairly frequently, because you can compensate for the lower sensitivity by more frequent testing, and then follow the protocols if there's a positive test around the gold standard PCR test. Right. So the protocol then would it be the same as what happens when there's a positive test right now in the more, the, the more standard test? Yes. You don't want to use these rapid tests to screen symptomatic people. You want the PCR test for that because it's highly sensitive. So if a person has symptoms, there's a higher probability they have COVID-19. And you can, because you know that they have symptoms, you can isolate that person, send them for a COVID test, and wait for those results to come back, which actually can come back in less than 24 hours. That is possible. Um, If but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, 100 people are reporting on shift in a given day at a care home. None of them are displaying symptoms. They don't think they have COVID. Nobody's testing them. Now, we know that uh, you're more likely to test positive if you're displaying symptoms, but we also know that you can test positive if you aren't showing symptoms. That what we call pre-symptomatic, which is about 24 to 48 hours before you start uh, displaying symptoms, and asymptomatic, which means you're never going to show symptoms even though you are going to go through a a contagious period. Those are what rapid testing or prophylactic testing could catch. We could do it with the PCR test, but that's a little more complicated. These rapid tests give you results, as I understand it, within some are 15 minutes and some are 30 minutes. Is there any fear, though, of in doing that if the test was to deliver a false positive and then you have a worker who's not able to come into work and and thinks that this person has the virus but doesn't? Well, you'd send them for the PCR test. So a person, um, that is possible, yes, that is correct. Um, We don't know the degree to which it gives false uh, positives. Every test will have some false negatives and false positives. The concern, I think, more is with the negatives. Um, but if a person was to test positive, they're, again, they're not displaying symptoms, they test positive with the rapid test, you quickly send them for the PCR COVID test, which will either confirm uh, that it is positive or not. Um, those will be uh, not uh, very often that that will happen, and I think given uh, the sort of what we call the risk-reward, I don't think there is 
uh, it is a significant barrier to using this test. That there might be a care worker who uh, is off shift for a day until they get the results of the PCR test. And if, in fact, they are positive and it's confirmed by the PCR test, we've caught it earlier than we otherwise would have. If it is negative and, in fact, they don't have COVID, uh, they return to work the next day. Uh, so what do you think is holding this up then? I mean, it seems like a, a smart thing to be doing. We know that there are rapid tests that are uh, in the hands of provincial health authorities. What's uh, keeping this from happening? I'm not sure. I think, to be fair to everybody, uh, there's a lot going on and there's a lot of moving parts. And as you know, uh, we are in the thick of this extremely prolific uh, second wave and trying to uh, get our transmission rates in the community down. Uh, but I think that given the number of outbreaks we're seeing and the spread in those outbreaks in long-term care, you know, we, in the first seven months of this pandemic, we had 235 deaths. We've had 96 in just the last seven weeks. Um, so I think there is actually an imperative to say uh, this is an added layer of detection that I think is warranted now. It's not the be-all and end-all. It's, uh, it's not a silver bullet. It is one of the layers. We have many layers. This is one layer we have not yet used, and I think that we've gotten to the level of community transmission and the level of outbreaks that we need to add this additional layer. And, and while we do that and, and look to that, do you have a better idea or know, as far as one of the questions is, how is the virus still getting into long-term care? And there seems to be a difference of opinion. Some people saying it's asymptomatic workers, others saying it might be family members who aren't following protocols. Do we know how, for the most part, it's still getting into long-term care? There's no evidence to support any family visitors bringing the virus in, and I would be uh, surprised at that. The visits are still extremely heavily restricted. Um, what uh, we know is predominantly uh, the case and was in the past is that staff are bringing it in. Uh, some of them are asymptomatic. Some of them are not recognizing symptoms, so they have a headache or they just feel a little bit unwell, um, and and they aren't uh, following. It's, it's hard to follow uh, rigorous PPE protocols day after day after day after day, month after month. Um, and I think that the COVID fatigue is slipping in around some of our uh, screening and, and PPE requirements as well. But the biggest driver of it is the, the level of community transmission. You know, we were successful in wave one uh, in long-term care in British Columbia. And we, and, and we took a number of uh, decisive actions very quickly at the beginning. But we also, overall in the pandemic in Wave 1, had a much lower rate of community transmission. That was also a significant contribution to our better outcomes in long-term care compared to, for example, Ontario and Quebec. Now our level of community transmission is equal to, for example, Ontario. And we're seeing that that translates into uh, more introduction of the virus into our long-term care home. All right. Uh, Isabel McKenzie, we'll have to leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you, Jill.
Thanks for being with us. Well, it is that time of year, I'm sure, in your neighborhood, wherever you might live. You've noticed Christmas lights going up, some people going all out with Christmas displays. I've certainly heard from more people that because there's no real travel on the horizon or anything else to really look forward to holiday-wise, a direct quote from a friend of mine, we're going balls to the walls on Christmas and decorations. Probably not the only one. At North Vancouver District Council, though, this evening, they are going to be looking at a motion that could lead to a new rule where Christmas lights would need to be turned off at a certain time at night. And joining me to talk more about this and what is happening is Jordan Back, who is a District of North Vancouver councillor. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. It's good to be with you. Uh, So I'm reading the motion, and it's written in what council motions are often written in, but it sounds like there were some enforcement challenges. There had been nuisance complaints about lighting in the past. Uh, The council brought in a lighting professional. Uh, So what are you actually looking at today? Well, Jill, uh, this this war on Christmas that uh, seems to have erupted in our community uh, all kind of stems back to a couple of workshops that we had uh, just over a year ago uh, with regards to a number of different things, uh, standards and concerns within the single family uh, home zone. Um, So those were things like retaining walls, uh, garage structures, nuisance lighting, which we're talking about, nuisance noise, um, and some areas, um, things around landscaping, retention, and uh, hard surfaces. Um, And so at that workshop, um, when we talked about the nuisance lighting, there were um, a couple of examples of, you know, uh, the types of lighting that we would be targeting, potentially, and uh, seasonal lighting is one of the concerns that came up. And uh, Uh, As you kind of alluded to, we haven't had a lot of complaints of this nature. In fact, there's only been three complaints uh, about seasonal lights uh, in the last five years. So three complaints in five years, and that's enough to possibly lead to a policy change? Unfortunately, in this case, um, it it is potentially. Um, We had, you know, certain residents come forward with these concerns and um, enough members of council kind of hearing those concerns and, and wanting to take some action. Uh, what are the complaints? So if we're talking about Christmas lights, Christmas displays, I know people like to put, uh, like to go all out, uh, whether it's a Santa, snowman, reindeer. Uh, what are the complaints or what are the specific complaints about the lights? Uh, I think it's, in this particular case, it's one complaint and it was just around the, the number of lights that their neighbour uh, had around their property on their light, on their trees and hedges and, uh, and that type of thing. Uh, so, I mean, I'm imagining a Griswold Christmas where the lights are so bright, it's just beaming lights into the neighbor's window, which I could see that would be annoying. But unless it's shining directly into somebody else's property, uh, I mean, who cares how, how long the lights are on or how many lights you have out? I tend to agree with you. And uh, Christmas Vacation is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I watch it every holiday season. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think in this case, it's, it kind of becomes a, a neighbor dispute uh, between two parties. Um, and not a community concern, in my opinion. Uh, But council is looking at this. So if this is passed tonight uh, or in the near future, it would mean, well, it would restrict not just Christmas lights, Halloween lights, uh, the number of days, they would have to be turned off by 11 p.m. Coming up on the Christmas season, they would be restricted from November 15th to January 15th, and they would have to be turned off every night by 11 p.m. So what would happen if somebody left their lights on after 11? You could risk getting a $100 fine 
And I think that's the part that really stings. Um, and uh, particularly given that we're in the midst of a pandemic, uh, I don't think this motion, I know this motion is, is not popular with the community at all. So I'm hoping that uh, the majority of council will, will see that tonight and we'll be able to uh, take this one back and uh, take it out or, uh, or take it back to the drawing board. Uh, and who would give the fine? Would it be bylaw or RCMP? Uh, in this case, I, I think it could be either, but like, most likely bylaws. Can you imagine the bylaw officer that knocks on someone's door at 11.15 at night and says, here's a ticket for 100 bucks because Santa is lit up on your yard? I, I don't think there's anything that's uh, right about that, uh, even if you're dressed as Scrooge, which you basically <laughs> would be at that point. So, uh, no, it wouldn't be popular at all. And I would think, too, or at least I would hope that bylaw officers and RCMP members have better things to deal with. Well, just as our, I think our council uh, has better things and bigger issues that we need to be dealing with, uh, I don't think this is the type of thing that uh, they should be dealing with either. Uh, so it comes up for discussion tonight. Uh, and, and is there a possibility then it could be passed tonight or it could be sh- uh, shelved? Uh, my real hope is that it's going to be uh, in your word shelved. I think it'll probably go back to another workshop, but I, I would my preference would be just to take it out. Uh, let's let's leave it as is. Um, I think this is going to be a hard enough Christmas for everybody as it is, um, but we'll see which way the discussion goes. All right. Well, Jordan, thanks for making the time for us. I have a feeling, depending on how this goes or wh- which way this goes, uh, we may be inviting you back on the show sooner rather than later. But thanks so much for joining us. Reach out anytime. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. Well, in Vancouver this past weekend, officers responded after a complaint was made about a large house party. Happened around 8.30 on Saturday night inside a condo. The complaint uh, coming from a neighbour, somebody who saw people arriving or could hear the sounds of the party. And that person uh, advised the concierge of the building that the party was taking place and that it clearly was in contravention of the COVID-19 restrictions that are in place. So police responded and were confronted then by numerous people inside, all, according to police, within close proximity of each other and not wearing masks. Unclear if tickets were handed out or what was happening, but this is an example of somebody making a complaint when they see somebody else breaking the COVID-19 restrictions. So what should you do if you find yourself in that scenario? Because uh, there are different ways of looking at it and there could be different outcomes. My next guest is Steve Jordans, Professor of Psychology at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Great to be with you. Uh, There is this ongoing debate. On the one hand, people want others to follow the rules. They don't want to be exposed or to be around something that's unsafe, but but also don't want to be known as that person who snitched on a neighbor. Yeah, it's it's such a tricky, tricky situation, especially because, kind of as you alluded to, there's different ways or different paths by which people come to violate some of these rules. And in some cases, it's just an explicit disregard or, you know, maybe even those who believe in the conspiracy theories or whatever. And so they're just, um, you know, really flying in the face of, of safety. Um, and then, But there's a lot of others. And these are, it's the other people I like to kind of make sure people think about where they're trying to find the right balance between doing the things that keep us physically safe, all the things we're hearing from the medical officers, but also trying to keep themselves mentally well at the same time. And, you know, the virus took a 
away our ability to socialize with others, and that is our go-to way of dealing with stress and, and, and everything we're feeling. So, you know, I can understand why people are being pulled to social interactions for, for mental health reasons. I can also kind of understand people snitching on, on them some of the time, but I do think when you're considering that, those, those are the things you have to weigh in mind. If you see, you know, somebody coming with their kids and their grandkids coming to see uh, parents at one level, it makes you go, oh, you could be causing trouble for those parents. At another level, it's so understandable that we've gone months without, you know, hugging grandkids and stuff and, and that that's so critical to us as well. So it's a fine balancing act right now. Do you think there's also, too, the, the possibility of exactly in a scenario like that to different from, say, the house party, when clearly if you're seeing groups and groups of people file into a small condo, you can be pretty sure that the rules are being broken. Well, you know they are, because in that health across the province of BC right now, there's a rule that there's no social gatherings. But there's also kind of the letter of the law and the nature of the law. And when you use that example of kids, grandkids, parents, they might not be doing anything that's dangerous, even though they might actually be breaking the letter of the law. Yeah, and and, I mean, maybe they are even, you know, causing some level of of physical danger or something, depending on how careful they're being. Um, And you don't know that either. Like, do they have the windows open in the house? Are they trying to keep reasonably distant? Are they potentially, like the condo example you gave is, is one where it's just easy, I think, (laughs) you know, if they're packing that many people into a small place, that's just not safe for for a lot of other people. But there are ways in which I think everybody has to try to find that that balance. And, you know, there's things that that I like to talk about, like, you know, winter outdoors, if we could all appreciate the outdoors, and I imagine things like, imagine we had a neighborhood skating rink where um, kids could go out and they're not, they don't mind wearing the mask in the winter. It, it keeps your face a little warm. It's not nearly as annoying. And if you had a bunch of kids outside or a bunch of teenagers even that you know, require some sort of social connectivity, if we can do that outside in an open air space with people masked, then we can find a balance where, yes, there's some potential of spreading the virus more than if everybody was sitting in their home, but not that much more. And and we're really helping people deal with the challenge of mentally getting through this space. So I think, you know, those are the things we have to think of as we go through. It would be nice to just make it all about physical health, but it's not just about physical health. This is a really hard time for a lot of people, a lot of uncertainty, and and our family and friends are what give us stability and comfort uh, during these kind of tough times. And so if we can walk a line, I think we got to be open to doing so. And I guess, too, it's just so different for people that if you're outside, and to use the example, say, in Vancouver, where the bylaw, it's prohibited to smoke on beaches. Well, if you're at the beach and someone's smoking, you can easily yeah. leave and go somewhere else. But if someone is spreading COVID or or being very unsafe and putting a virus into the community, you can't simply walk away and know that you're going to be safe. Yeah, I, I mean, that's absolutely, you know, that's the other thing that's kind of when, when we hear people saying things like, well, it should be my choice or whatever, as we especially see south of the border, it, it's kind of like, well, this isn't a solely your choice. You know, your choice has an impact on, on people who are not free to choose. Uh, and so that's where it does, you know, that's where we get into this notion that I have the right to be snitching on people. And, and maybe in some cases, I actually have the responsibility uh, if I think they could be endangering others by their behavior, uh, even if it's not me personally, I might feel like I have to say something. And and I think in cases where somebody is clearly uh, being negligent and, and just self-centered, 
um, you know, maybe there's a reasonableness in doing that. It's a little worrisome, you know, like from a psychological perspective, what you'd rather do, though, is try to get them on side. So the worry about when you get this sort of snitch dynamic going on is it becomes an us versus them. And and that's no, that's not a good technique for getting them to see the rationality or the reasonableness of, of your way. And so we would love, you know, I'm surprised there aren't more emotionally targeted public service announcements going out like we sometimes see for drunk driving or distracted driving, where we try to kind of hit home to people the, the potential consequences that could happen to others uh, if you engage in certain behaviors and, and try to, through an emotional means, kind of get them to understand. Um, you know, that's what we really want. We want us all pulling together against this common enemy. And while the snitching thing is reasonable at times, it, it is sort of going against that. Um, and so that's, you know, that's why I wish we could focus more on other approaches to try to get everybody rowing together, so to speak. <laughs> because there's also a, a certain amount of stress, uh, I would imagine, too, in that people, generally speaking, don't love confrontation. And if you're suddenly mm-hmm. in a position where you've called the police on your neighbors, that can yeah. lead to, to a very uncomfortable living situation for you as well. Yeah, down the road. And and sometimes even, unfortunately, I, I, we I know of a situation like that where someone built a deck and someone called an inspector and the inspector said the deck had to come down and and suddenly it was like uh, accusations of who was that neighbor who ratted on me. (laughs) And so it, it may have caused negative things, not just with the person who actually snitched, but with other suspects that you have. So, you know, it opens that person up to be suspicious of various people and it can really create this sort of split in the social fabric when what what we really need is, you know, in, in psychology we have this term that we call the common enemy and the virus should be the common enemy that we all join together to fight. But the, the tricky thing is, you know, mental health is also a factor there. Uh, and, and again, there's the people that are just flying in the face of it, but there's another group of people that are really trying to find ways of, of coping and getting through. And often that does mean violating some of the rules to some extent. Uh, and, and they're doing that because they feel like they need it on a, on a mental health level. And I get that. I understand that too. So, you know, that, that's a real my message is when you see somebody you know, don't just see it through the health lens, see it through the mental health lens as well and, and decide whether the transgression is major and or minor and maybe understandable um, and, and save our save our snitching for those major, you know, the ones that are really just not playing along right All right. It's good advice and certainly something to think about. We'll have to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for your time. No problem. Have a great one. Well, we have been talking a lot about getting the message out and the best ways to get the message out when it comes to restrictions, when it comes to new orders about COVID-19, trying to stop the spread of this virus. And earlier today, the World Seek Organization of Canada put out a call for urgent increased engagement and outreach to racialized communities in the battle against COVID-19. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Jaskaran Sandhu, the National Director of Administration with the World Seek Organization. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure being on. What would you like to see, or I guess what is lacking right now in getting that engagement and getting that outreach? Yeah, and I, I guess first I want to share what just the frustration is. Uh, and the frustration has been uh, within the state community, you know, specifically, but also uh, the South Asian community, generally speaking, and racialized community even more generally, um, is that uh, folks from our community uh, are, are often being scapegoated or stigmatized uh, for what have been 
rather institutional uh, failings or, you know, chronic kind of underfunding in our community, especially around health care. Uh, and this has been a, a common theme across the country. Uh, and it's also been um, ignorant of the fact that folks from our community, uh, you know, in, in whether that's Surrey uh, in, in BC to Brampton in Ontario, uh, are often essential workers. So they're on the front lines, whether it's in healthcare itself, uh, whether it's in industrial settings like factories and warehouses, uh, whether it's in trucking or logistics. And uh, because of this, uh, are in especially vulnerable community. And one of the gaps uh, we've really noticed is uh, around the uh, contextualization of guidelines, right? It, it's not enough to just translate and relay information uh, from English to, let's say, Punjabi. Uh, and, a, and a common uh, you know, theme uh, that we've seen over and over again is that native English speakers are not even reading the English guidelines. Uh, why do we expect a translation is enough for uh, racialized communities that have a lot of other uh, you know, factors uh, playing on uh, COVID transmission locally and, and within communities? Uh, so this is kind of like the context and, and the underpinnings for uh, the call from the World Sick Organization today, but but also for many other nonprofit actors uh, across the province and the country. So what do you think needs to change then, or what would make that better? Yeah, so kind of go back to the point that I touched upon. Uh, you know, relaying information is not enough. And, and don't get me wrong, Fraser Health Authority um, and the BC relative to a lot of other parts in this country, has actually been very good on the communication side. Uh, they've done a, a better job of uh, standing up for communities. They've done a better job for uh, you know, providing translated materials. However, you know, there's, there's room for more. There always is room for more, especially in communities vulnerable like ours. Uh, the one piece that's kind of been missing um, uh, at, at a very high level and within communities is that contextualization. It's taking that information and sitting down with really important stakeholders and, and community members uh, so that they understand uh, how to actually implement this in really unique circumstances, right? Whether that's our places of worship. For example, uh, Gurdwaras in the Sikh community, you know, they act as community hubs. Uh, they have a langar, which is essentially a, a community kitchen of sorts uh, that solves a lot of food security issues in, in communities. Uh, they're, they're very robust institutions. Uh, and COVID mitigation guidelines from you know, one-size-fits-all type are, are not going to be enough uh, in ensuring that uh, these important pillars are getting all the support they need. Uh, and it's just kind of this ongoing theme around this uh, topic, again, across the country, where that contextualization is missing and that gap is being filled by nonprofit actors. And it's just another onus on racialized communities that they're carrying uh, in fighting COVID-19, again, being very vulnerable communities. And when you use the example then of the Gudwaras, because uh, I know it's changed now with the, the new orders and, and across the province, then from what I understand is the gathering can't happen, but the kitchen can stay open. Uh, I mean, is there a disconnect there in that there's still like, how, how do you get the food to people who need it the most? Yeah, and, and look, the, the guidelines are going to change, right? They're fluid they're, and they're changing constantly. And, you know, by the way, that's, that makes us even more confusing, especially for folks that speak English as a second language. Uh, and kind of keeping up with all of this. And, you know, there is a bit of a disconnect, right? Because Gurdwara, for example, within the Sikh context, you know, operates very differently than a lot of places of worship. Uh, again, they, they serve a 24-7 community hub function. And the folks that you need uh, within the Gurdwara, let's say, to prepare the meals, 
you know, how do you respect the guidelines effectively while also maintaining this very important service in communities, by the way, that, are, that tend to be significantly underfunded, chronically underfunded on important institutional uh, infrastructure, uh, whether that's healthcare or otherwise. So, you know, that's one of the frustrations the community feels. Uh, and, you know, the community has come up to the plate every single time. Uh, has been hitting home runs over and over again for the good of the entire province uh, in BC's uh, particular context, but also across the country. Uh, but yet we still kind of get stigmatized and people don't really appreciate what's kind of going on in these communities and the hard work that's being done uh, from essential workers to, you know, the fact that uh, the premier held up uh, the sick community and other South Asian communities as a really good example of how they uh, mitigated against transmission during Diwali. Uh, you know, and this keeps coming up where the community is stepping up. Uh, but, you know, there's still a, a frustration that you know, more can be done to speak to communities at a local ground. All right. Well, Jessica, and we're going to have to leave it there for today because we're right out of time. But thanks so much uh, for bringing this uh, to our attention, for talking about this. And I hope that things do change. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we know we are still living with COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, There was a change in some of the orders that were placed on businesses, on social gatherings throughout the province. So we had that clarification coming out on Thursday. You may not know this, but as part of the most recent public health orders, live theatre organizations across BC have been forced to close. Some were operating with those new restrictions and safely putting one-actor productions on the stage but that is not the case anymore. And our show contributor, John Jang, has more now on how this is having an impact on the Arts Club Theatre Company. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. It's already been such a difficult year for the arts. A lot of people still very much out of work and uncertain of what that future is going to look like. And now there's a new challenge facing all of them involved. As part of the most recent public health orders issued by Dr. Bonnie Henry last week, live theatre organizations across the entire province must now shut down their operations. Joining us to talk about that is Peter Cathy White. He is the executive director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. And Peter, a couple of months ago, I spoke with your colleague Ashley Corcoran, who's the artistic director, about the excitement and the energy that was going into the announcement of one-actor shows being put on by the Arts Club for the season. And I wish you and I could talk today under more ideal circumstances, but here we are. And I was wondering, what was your reaction when you heard the news last week? Uh, Well, my reaction was a little bit heartbroken and devastated and confused, I would say. Um, I should clarify that the uh, order is for two and a half weeks, so we're not planning to close everything for, for, you know, forever. We are still planning to do productions in the remainder of the season. Our season runs September to August. However, this current closure uh, that did mandate that live theatre closed down uh, we are confused by because uh, as part of the same order in terms of uh, when Dr. Bonnie Henry was explaining it, she said that uh, businesses who have proven that they can operate safely have been allowed to remain open. That includes restaurants, bars and cinemas. Uh, what we're confused about is that live theatre has proved that we can operate safely and we are a business. We're not, you know, uh, just because we're a not-for-profit business doesn't mean that we're not a business and people are relying on us for their employment and we're relying on our patrons coming uh, for, uh, to our productions for support. So I suppose we're confused as to why uh, cinemas can be open and live theatre can't where we've done over 156 performances in September. There have been no safety breaches. Our safety protocols are strict and strong, and there's been no case of transmission at live theatre in BC. So we are confused by 
the conflicting statements. Yes, to clarify, Live Theater is shut down until December 7th, after which the health authorities will re-examine the situation, so the future is still unclear as of right now. You did mention that you've put on over 100 shows since September, and I'm wondering you know, what you heard from both the staff who were involved with the production and guests themselves who went and attended in regards to safety measures that were in place, whether it felt like it wasn't enough for them or maybe it went the other way and that they felt very comfortable with everything. Yeah, and it's the latter. We survey all our patrons after they come to any of our productions, uh, and that includes these since we've been doing se- since September. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive, very strong. People have felt safe. They are physically distanced within our theatre. We had mandatory masks since September in our spaces, uh, and we don't have any bar service. I mean, there's no one taking off their mask to sip a drink or eat popcorn in our theatres. And uh, all our spaces are sanitized. I mean, obviously, the safety of our patients is paramount to us and the safety of our artists and employees. Uh, And we have followed the safety protocols uh, and submitted our safety plans, and they've been working very well. Uh, So uh, I suppose that also leads to our, you know, dismay over, you know, uh, why live theater has been singled out in this order when there is no safety breach in live theater. Up until last week, even though you had these productions, small productions, and you were able to put on over 100 shows, it should be noted that there are still so many people who are out of work right now because the Arts Club is following the rules and not having more people on site than what is allowed. So a break in production, it does impact the bottom line and the future of everyone involved, even if it's only for two weeks. Oh, it definitely is. You're so right, John. It's a huge blow. I mean, these are three small, one cast member productions. By now, we would have uh, been been rehearsing up to six productions, uh, seven to include one on tour. We would have employed, you know, over 100 artists by now uh, since September, since the start of the season. That's not the case this year. Uh, But we are doing what we can do to keep our staff employed and to employ as many artists as we can at this time too, which we feel is really important. This has been rough for artists. I mean, so many cancelled contracts so much lost work uh, and we're not the only ones doing it the fire hall also had a show on i know mitch and murray productions had a show on that was also closed down so we are all feeling this devastation again and uh and we understand safety health you know public health i mean that's important and you know we have complied with the order what we don't understand is uh, and haven't been explained to as to why live theater has been singled out when there has been no safety You and Ashley co-wrote an open letter to Health Minister Adrian Dix that has been shared by publications over this past weekend, uh, really detailing your disappointment with the closure, but also stating that you have proven your ability to safely operate your business. Yes, and I think that's a really important thing for us to get across because in speaking with my colleagues and my concern as well and our concern at the Arts Club is that this public statement uh, reduces public confidence in our safety when we haven't had any breaches. So uh, the, the message, uh, I, I don't like that message because it's it's not an accurate message about how our safety protocols have been going. And so we're confused by that too. If our listeners today want to get involved and want to make a donation perhaps to try and help out the Arts Club or if there's any way that they can get more resources and information, I guess the best place to do that would be to go online. Yeah, the Arts Club is a not-for-profit charitable organization. You can donate donate online. It's easy to find on our uh, website, artsclub.com. Any support from this community uh, to 
the Arts Club and to all arts organisations at this time is so greatly appreciated. This has been such a devastating time for the arts and we really have to make sure that as a community we come together to ensure the survival of the arts in this city because it's important. He is Peter Cathy White, Executive Director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. Peter, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. I know it's not easy what you and your team are facing right now, and I wish you the very best. Thank you, John. Appreciate it.